T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. This year marks two decades that the Oakland Police Department has been under federal court oversight, the result of a settlement stemming from the so-called writer's scandal, which brought to light allegations of police abuse and misconduct involving a group of four OPD officers. What's followed for the department has been round after round of contentious reforms and a steady stream of fresh scandals. Finally, though, after all this time, there was strong hope that this could be the year that this long-standing, costly oversight might come to an end. But then last month, Oakland Police Chief Leron Armstrong was placed on leave following a report alleging the department had mishandled two cases of officer misconduct. Those findings now raising doubts about the entire reform project. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Mancone. Today on the program, to help understand what's going on in Oakland right now, we're going to take a look back at how we got to this moment by diving into the history of the city's police department and the many attempts at reform it's faced over the decades. Bringing us that look, welcoming on now an investigative journalist who's been covering OPD for the past many years. Uh, that's independent criminal justice reporter Ollie Winston who just co-wrote a new book called The Writers Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. Uh, Ali Winston, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So as you write, uh, this period of court oversight represents the longest police reform effort for any city in the country. Um, And uh, understanding it is especially relevant at this moment in the wake of the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Uh, You know, uh, after all these years of calls for change, A lot of folks are wondering what it's going to take to make that kind of brutality that we saw in that video a thing of the past. Um, uh, But let's actually start a little bit further back. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the writer's scandal and how it resulted in this settlement. Sure. So the writer's scandal stems from Jerry Brown's mayoralty in the late 1990s and early 2000s. During his effort to clean up Oakland, uh, he put in place an NYPD-style practice of zero-tolerance policing, um, whereby 
officers were instructed to clear corners of vagrants, suspected drug dealers, um, to reestablish order in downtown and the areas they're in and, and the nearby areas. And in the year 2000, a young officer fresh out of the police academy, Keith Batt, uh, this rookie was assigned for field training in West Oakland, a traditionally African-American area of the city that's seen an unfortunate uh, problem with violent crime and drug dealing, open street uh, dealing for decades. And during the course of less than two weeks on the job, Bat saw four officers, Chuck Mavenag, Matt Hornug, June Siapano, and Frank Vasquez kidnap people, beat them, plant drugs on them, send them to prison on fake evidence and really just act out the film training day, except it was in Oakland instead of Los Angeles, if that's familiar to your listeners. Yeah. So as revelations about that, those alleged actions came to light, um, it really caused uh, an uproar in the city. But uh, ultimately, the criminal trials against those officers uh, did not lead to convictions. Uh, What did happen was uh, a settlement. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that settlement and what's followed from there. Certainly. So the settlement reached was a result of 119 victims of the riders. Uh, That's the name that these four officers gave to themselves. So it was Um, a class action lawsuit. It was a class action suit. Um, All but one of the plaintiffs were African-American. And they wanted to, in order to basically not bankrupt the city of Oakland, but find a lasting, meaningful uh, solution ostensibly to the problem of excessive force and egregious police misconduct, civil rights violations. The two attorneys who filed the suit, uh, John Burris and Jim Shannon, who had been suing police departments in the Bay Area for decades and seeking meaningful resolutions and fixes to these very issues, they they secured, with the agreement of the city of Oakland, a consent decree, effectively, a lawsuit that outlined a list of 50-something reforms to the disciplinary process, the internal affairs mechanism of OPD, and its early warning and uh, training programs for officers to make certain that this sort of conduct couldn't repeat itself. In other typically, this sort of suit is brought by the Federal Department of Justice or other state's attorneys general and has been used to address police misconduct scandals in Los Angeles, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. In, this, in the case of Oakland, the federal government was uninterested in filing a suit in, fi- in investigating OPD's misconduct. The same thing with California's attorney general. They all passed the buck. Uh, but this consent decree, actually, that resulted from OPD's over, um, lawsuit from the Riders scandal has actually endured longer than any other consent decree and in some ways has been more rigorous than any of the other um, agreements that are subject to the whims of whatever part, whatever you know, party or individual is in political office. Speaking with independent criminal justice reporter Ollie Winston, and yeah, I found that uh, very interesting, the fact that at the time when this settlement was accepted by the city, the thought that was that they were avoiding potentially tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars that this lawsuit could lead to. And this was a settlement that may just be around for the next few years. The, the They could get through it. And here we are 
two decades later, it's uh, still in place. It seems like uh, basically nobody uh, expected uh, that to happen. And uh, your book is really focused on the twists and turns, the history of this settlement, uh, what it's added up to, how we've gotten here. Uh, But I think also very important is your book goes back even further. It looks at the total history of the Oakland Police Department. um, And that has been a history that has been defined by uh, waves of uh, revelations about brutality and uh, waves of reform as well. What, what, when you do look back, all the way back into the 19th century, to the beginning of the OPD and come back through history, what is the pattern that emerges? Uh, why do you think it's important to go and look that, back that far? Well, it's important to rewind and take a holistic view of the Oakland Police Department for a couple of reasons. One, the reason why the consent decree hasn't been implemented in the short term in the past 20 years is a direct resulter of intransigence and resistance from the old, from basically a hardcore within the Oakland Police Department that sets the tone and determines internal culture and views any in, views the outside imposition of reform and oversight as interference, temporary, uh, something to be dealt with in the short term, but something that really shouldn't change the fundamental aspects of the police department. Um, this isn't a universal view, but this hardcore element, actually, you can trace it all the way back through the department's history um, to the 19th century. And that really comes out in the ways that the Oakland Police Department, throughout mo- the basically up until the mid 20th century, the mission of the police department was done was for two things. It was one, to protect the private property and power of the Anglo elite that ruled the city. And second, it was the intent of the police department was to keep rest of populations in line, be it Chinese immigrants, um, labor radicals in the early 20th century, the African-American population that migrated to Oakland during the Second World War and stayed for the war industries did not return home like the city's leadership expected them to, to the South. Um, And then new new left radicals in the 1960s. And crime control actually comes into play as a rationale really in the middle of the 20th century, around the time of the Vietnam War. And In that way, you can actually understand how a very reactionary, um, hardcore culture that really resembles the Los Angeles Police Department of um, William Parker and the sort of the stuff that you'd see in films like L.A. Confidential. It's very similar to um, to the LAPD in that respect. So the main reason why the past really matters for the present is you have to understand how these institutions form their internal like mores and their internal sets of values and they cannot be changed on the short term there was a police there was a very reform-minded police chief for instance in the mid late 1960s early 1970s charles gain who did try and pull opd a white man an oki who grew up in oakland white man um during the black power era right he would face off with the panthers he would face off with huey newton and bobby seal but he would also you know at some point he actually saved huey's life when he let him know about a hit that was being put on his head. Um, and in many ways, his attempts to get OPD away from this kind of jackbooted culture that they had in the early, uh, basically up into that era, resulted in changes, but he was also forced out by 1973 uh, after a no confidence vote by the police union. And it's not just the police union that helps transmit this culture down the years. There's also legacy officers. There are fraternal organizations that operate below the level of... Um, labor organizing. It's a really fascinating and kind of grim story, but it also translates beyond Oakland as well. Yeah, very uh, storied history. And I think that this work does a great job of kind of opening up 
this culture that is uh, fairly mysterious for those of us who have never served in law enforcement. We're going to get into more of that in just a second. Uh, real quick and remind listeners, this is KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by investigative journalist Ollie Winston. With OPD once again in tumult, uh, we're talking about police reform in Oakland and his new book, The Writers Come Out at Night. So that sets the stage for the current epoch that we are in, which again began in 2003 with this uh, settlement that has set in place uh, federal court oversight for OPD, trying to push the department towards reform in a lot of different directions. A lot of that has to do with how internal investigations are carried out. A lot of that has to do with how training is carried out. What, I guess, let's actually walk us through that. What What was the goal of this settlement? What are the metrics that OPD has been pushing towards over all this time? Certainly. So the 52 tasks are very complex. They involve... Um, Things as simple as making sure there are enough sergeants to establish a span of control to properly supervise officers on the street. That's what happened with the riders. Their sergeant actually would go park his patrol car under a freeway bridge and fall asleep rather than go out in the field and monitor them. Uh, there are things like setting up a computerized early warning system and tracking system for officer uh, arrests, misconducts, things, misconduct um, incidents, things like that. So there can this sort of conduct can be... A, identified ahead of time and possibly headed off at the pass rather than result in someone being framed up or shot by an officer in a bad situation. Um, we have things that also, there are elements of the consent decree that also um, change, offer to change around uh, the internal affairs process so that every complaint is investigated um, thoroughly and that they're investigated in a timely fashion, that the pro disciplinary process basically treats all officers equally and that final uh, punishment doesn't depend on somebody's political connection or rank, uh, which unfortunately has been the case. That's actually been one of the main downfalls. Over the years, the consent decree, um, you know, it's been extended at least four times mm. since 2003, since the initial uh, decree was signed. And oftentimes the extensions have had to do with the department not taking it seriously. For the first five years, I had a senior commander tell me that, you know, it, that agreement just sat in, in someone's desk drawer. We didn't take it seriously. It was not something that was in the department's mind. Mm. That's also a condemnation of the city's political class as well to not enforce it. And frankly, down the years, it really has been viewed by Oakland's leadership, not just the police department, but the mayor and the city council, not all of them, but the majority, as a box to be checked rather than meaningful reform that is to be taken into the department and basically sets the tone for policing in the city. The consent decree really started to get enforced. Um, you know, there's an outside monitoring team that tracks OPD's progress with this and publishes quarterly reports, which have actually been really useful um, lenses into the police department's overall management down the years for reporters and uh, people who are interested in police accountability in Oakland. And in 2009, 10, and 11, when a very intense cycle, cycles, I should say, of protests kicked off with the murder of Oscar Grant by former BART cop Johannes Meserly, then the Occupy Oakland movement um, came around in 2011, 2012, the OPD's reaction and brutal suppression of those demonstrations really, and the ways in which they botched the subsequent internal affairs investigations brought the department to the brink of a federal takeover. 
by the court. And it was at that moment, 2012, 2011, 2012, when the monitor actually gained partial control over the police department. He gained the ability to mm. hire or to basically fire a police chief to make certain to have a final sway over discipline. And the city of Oakland really was had kind of a boot on their neck to make certain that they were going to implement this program and not fob it off and lo and behold the results. Um, so the real issue with the consent decree has been willingness by the command staff to make certain that all these components are put into play. And the department almost got out from underneath the consent decree during Sean Went's term as police chief. Sean Went was a very dogged internal affairs investigator for most of his career. And when he took over the police department in 2013, he really pushed to make certain that the training changed, that officers really were up on, that enough sergeants were in place, that the internal affairs investigations were done according to the book. And he was doing a very good job on that until the sexual exploitation scandal of 2016, um, where dozens of officers from Oakland and other agencies were found to be um, trafficking an underage sex worker. Sean went, covered that incident up, and it led to his downfall. And since then, it's been one step forward, two steps backward for the Oakland Police Department um, up until last month. Yeah, yeah. So really not a linear process by any means. And not at all. <laughs> uh, lots of twists and turns. But you also suggest in the book that despite all of the backsliding that we have seen, despite all of the resistance that has taken place uh, to these reforms, there are real measurable changes that have happened. I mean, you said at the beginning of this interview that uh, the Oakland of today is not the same Oakland of 2000 when the writer's scandal took place. So what has changed? That's right. So the Oakland Police Department engaged in a number of efforts down the years to really make certain that the most egregious um, violations like false arrests, um, racial extensive racial profiling, public strip searches of African-American men, falsified search warrants at one point, the narcotics, 60% of all narcotics warrants in the department in the department were um, bunk. They were written off templates. They were useless. Um, these processes have absolutely changed. Um, OPD, several years back, engaged in a program to track um, the stops that its officers made, traffic and walking stops. And they, engaged, they worked with a Stanford University professor, Jennifer Eberhardt. The police department also overhauled its chase policy, and this is a really critical element, which helped reduce the number of shootings that OPD officers engaged in from about roughly 12 to 15 a year, maybe a decade ago, a little bit more than that. And several of those would be fatal, and quite a number of those would all involve somebody who is unarmed, um, to maybe one or one to four a year. It's not to say that one death like that is too many. However, the emphasis on maintaining uh, safety, broader public safety during those chases, not just catching the suspect no matter what the cost, but basically establishing a perimeter, getting sufficient backup, making certain that the pursuit didn't put people in danger. That drastically reduced the number of uh, officer-involved shootings in Oakland of police shootings. Just last month in a hearing over the status of OPD's consent decree, uh, remarks were made by the plaintiff's counsel um, that in their filing papers that the sheer number of reductions of officer-involved shootings in Oakland alone was worth the 20 years of the consent decree. That that change has been 
remarkable. It has been achieved with through a lot of sweat and tears and blood. Um, that's an unfortunate way to put it. But at the same time, what you're no longer seeing in Oakland are the sort of officer-involved shootings like the sort that the Vallejo Police Department have been under the microscope for in recent years. Um, and I think that really justifies in some ways the length of time and the sheer efforts that have been made to reform the OPD's practices. That's not to say, it's not, that's not to say that the Oakland Police Department is perfect. Um, there are still many, many problems, particularly with the internal affairs investigations. And that has actually been the kind of downfall of OPD and the consent decree and brings into question whether or not it actually can be ended and whether OPD may or may not need a permanent form of outside oversight. That same thing could be said about any police department, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, that creates a, a good segue to the next part of our conversation and what's happening in Oakland uh, right now. Uh, but real quick, once again, going to remind listeners, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, with the fate of Oakland's police department hanging in the balance, we're taking a look at the long history of reform efforts in the city and considering what could come next. Uh, joining us for that look is Ali Winston. He's an investigative journalist and the co-author of the new book, The Writers Come Out at Night. So uh, again, getting up to date on current events, let's talk about what's happening in Oakland right now. Uh, last month, the city's new mayor, Sheng Tao, placed police chief Leron Armstrong on administrative leave, as we mentioned at the top, uh, amid allegations that uh, he failed to properly review officer misconduct cases uh, before the investigations were closed. For his part, um, Armstrong has defended his conduct, uh, claiming he followed all policies and procedures. Uh, and actually, he even went a step further, saying that uh, the case was taken out of his hands by the federal monitor, Robert Warshaw. Uh, meantime, uh, the judge overseeing OPD's settlement uh, has expressed disappointment at the findings and uh, even suggested the end of the federal oversight could be pushed back as a result. So uh, strongly diverging interpretations of what's going on here, Ollie Winston. Uh, what do you make of this moment? What do you think that this episode reveals about OPD? Well, in many ways, I know that when the police chief is suspended, that always takes the headlines. But in many ways, Chief Armstrong's administrative suspension uh, is a distraction from the real core issue here. And that's the breakdown, complete breakdown of OPD's internal affairs process. The internal affairs process in Oakland failed yet again, whereas it failed in the 2016 sexual exploitation scandal. Um, it failed during the a number of other incidents, the investigations of the Occupy Oakland protests. It failed during, the, for instance, the conduct of the riders. It failed to catch them. Uh, there are many other incidents documented in uh, the book that Darwin Von Graham and I wrote. But the bottom line is the current flap over the police chief wanting his job back. I don't think a lot of the people in Oakland's political class, and many of them I understand are new to the job or relatively new, really understand the level to which the federal court has control over the police department's affairs and how the consent decree, making sure the consent decree is followed, is Laurent, or is at the heart of what it means to be the police chief of Oak in Oakland. And the fact that Leron Armstrong was negligent in ensuring the integrity of his internal affairs division, uh, that's a huge problem. That would have been a massive problem regard even if he hadn't had a consent decree over him. And if there wasn't a essentially a partial federal control, partial court control over the department. And since there is, 
it's, you know, there's no real go bank going back from that. I can understand why people are upset. Um, but again, this is what happens when you don't take police reform seriously. It has egregious consequences. That's a really interesting point, And I think it drives home one of the core theses of this book is simply that this settlement agreement, this oversight has been absolutely central to the story of OPD for the past 20 years. It continues to be central to that story. And it's not a simple uh, it's not a simple story at all. It's it's a messy yeah. story. But um, it also seems to add up to advances in a lot of different places. And you've uh, discussed some of the ways that police conduct has improved over the past two decades. I, I suppose just to end things out, we only have a couple of minutes left. I'm curious for the broader lessons that we can all take away from this. If we are in this moment, once again, where folks are waiting to see more criminal justice reform, more police reform, what are the lessons that can be taken away from Oakland? So one thing that we actually do not answer in our book, um, it's a little bit above our pay grade, is whether or not law enforcement can be completely reformed. The current shape of the criminal justice system is deeply flawed and in many ways broken. Um, what The ways in which it does improve and change are not due to people on the inside making that change. There are whistleblowers who come out, they press really hard for changes, but oftentimes, in fact, not oftentimes, quite often, they are defeated, ostracized, retaliated against, um, and victimized by the same people with whom they're sworn to serve and protect, right? Um, there's a thin blue line, there's a blue wall of silence, and when you break that, the consequences are dire. But what does ensure reform is relentless outside pressure, be it from a federal court, be it from civil rights attorneys, be it from activists, be it from outside investigative bodies, you know, this independent civilian reform. There are ways in which things do change for the better. Is that sufficient? Do we have answers in the current um, form of outside oversight uh, that we currently have in the society? Maybe not. Maybe consent decrees aren't sufficient. Maybe they shouldn't end. Maybe the consent decrees do need to change. I personally think the open consent decree is a little bit outdated. Um, there are many other professionals in the field who would wait, who would make the same uh, judgment. But in a lot of ways, I think that what we have to learn from the current moment, what Oakland really does show is how that sort of community pressure, and it doesn't just, it doesn't just start overnight. It's not a one month, three month, two year thing. The push to make certain that the Oakland Police Department doesn't abrogate people's rights and doesn't run roughshod over the community. It's a 70-year, 80-year process. I mean, we trace back in our books some of the earliest attempts at um, holding the police department accountable to the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And this red thread really runs through Oakland's modern history. And it's something which leads to a very educated electorate in terms of policing and police reform and police misconduct. And it's an issue that really is never far from the surface in the city's affairs. Um, and any community that wants to change law enforcement cannot engage with it on a temporary or, you know, as you and can't engage with the problem on a episodic basis. You know, it has to be sustained because the problems do not go away. The, the police are the police, the sheriff's departments, our law enforcement agencies, their day to day practices are ingrained in our society. They're used to address way too many problems that frankly, they shouldn't be addressing like mental health, homelessness, things like that. And there really has to be kind of a look beyond 
policing and more towards like the holistic criminal justice system? Should it be addressing all the things that it is addressing? Or do we need to kind of rebuild other aspects of, of our society that we decimated over the past few decades? Yeah, well, certainly when you broaden the scope, as you have done in this book, and taken that panoramic view of the department over its many, many decades of uh, history, you really do get an appreciation for how long-standing a lot of these problems are. And, uh, you know, <laughs> when, when you stack it all up, these 20 years stop seeing like uh, quite so much. And uh, in some ways, it does give you hope that uh, this this long project that's been undertaken uh, has more time to grow, has more time to show results. And so uh, we will see what the rest of the year and the years that follow uh, will hold. For right now, we're going to round out this conversation and thank our guest, Ollie Winston. He's an investigative journalist and the author of the new book, The Writers Come Out at Night. Ollie Winston, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission.